Exodus chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You're to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. This is the word of God, and we thank God for this reading of his word. Well, let's turn open our Bibles. As we turn to this passage, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 7 this morning. And like we've been saying there with the boys and girls, we're going to cover a large amount of text here this morning. Uh, So Exodus chapter 7, uh, and we are going to make our way through this uh, from Exodus 7 all the way through uh, to Exodus 11, because we want to take this as one big sweep. We want to see what the Lord is doing uh, as we look at this. Uh, And often this passage has been referred to, we we probably know it best, as the the ten plagues, but we do want to think of it uh, slightly differently. You'll pick it up there in chapter 7, how the Lord refers to it. He refers to uh, miraculous signs and wonders. These are signs and wonders. So there's something deeper going on that we want to try and get to the heart of this morning as we look at the ten ten plagues as we would know them. So uh, God hears, God speaks, God rescues. Remember that little framework for making our way through Exodus? God hears, God speaks, God rescues. And we're at God's rescue here this morning. So, here's a question. How do people justify their sin? How do people justify their sin? How do we justify our sin? We know that we sin. We know that we do things that are not right, that we go our way instead of God's way. We say yes to sin regularly. So, how do we justify it? How do we get around it? And as we live in a world that each person does now what is right in their own eyes, that's where we're heading. We're not very far away from it. We're pretty much there. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. No one can tell the other what to do. Not even the authorities can tell me what to do anymore. We get more and more videos, don't we, of uh, police officers getting uh, abuse on the street. How dare you tell me that I'm breaking the law? Who wrote the law? So how do we get around this? 
How do we live in a world where we, we know that there is a God? Romans, we've been thinking about it, tells us that. We try to suppress it, but we know that He's there, and yet we want to, we want to have our sin. How do, how, do we get, how do we get around that? What does the world do to try and anesthetize itself? What does it do to try and numb itself from the guilt and the shame of rebelling against our God? What's our, what's our tactics? What does the world do? Well, it's simple, isn't it? They just try to ignore Him. Just out of sight, out of mind. If, if I can push God onto the shelf of my life, if I can push Him to the very outside of society, if I can deem Him to be irrelevant and unpowerful, non-powerful, if, if I can write Him off, then happy days. That that guilt, that shame, that knowledge inside myself, that little itch, that voice, that question, well, we can just push it away, bury it somewhere in the background. And that's what the world does. It says, Jesus, this man called Jesus that you all worship, that we worship, well, well he turned up about 2,000 years ago, and you know what? He's really irrelevant. He was nice for the people of the time, and yes, he caused a bit of a stir, but now, no, don't, don't worship him now. He's He's totally irrelevant. And instead, what does our society do? It sets up idols, idols of our age. And so, what are the idols? What are the things that we worship? Well, we don't worship uh, often wood and stone. We don't go to some great temple to do that. But we have other ways of worshiping, don't we? Self-worship. We worship image. For some of our younger people in particular, you're going to worship popularity. For all of us, we, in some sense, worship technology and science as if they will save us. And yet, all of this is not new. What do we see in Exodus chapter 7? We see that the Egyptians did just this, that they tried to push God into the background. 400 years, we keep talking about this, it's been 400 years of, of relative silence from the Lord. And so, what do the Egyptians do? Well, well, they think that Yahweh, this God of the Hebrews, the great I Am, he's, he's irrelevant. And you can imagine them talking to one another in the, the pomp and the, the richness of Egypt as they would have chatted around, I don't know if they had their nice lattes and cappuccinos, right? But they would have uh, been meeting and chatting. The, the God that the Hebrews used to worship, that God, He's nothing only a notion and a dream. He's some sideline deity. He's not, he's not powerful. He's only for the weak, silly, stupid people of Israel. Not for us. Not for us progressive Egyptians. We would never worship a God like that. And you can imagine that they would have said, look at us. Look at our modern culture. Look at our, our great architecture. Look at the constructions that we're able to build. Look at all that we have achieved. Look at our prosperity. Our gods work. Our gods are pleased with us. We have truth, and we know the way. It's just like our society. You take a, a gauge of society and the media, and the media seems to present it as, oh, all's going well. We're prospering. We're, we're enlightened people. We're much further on than those who, who lived way, way, way back. We're better. They didn't really know what they were doing. They were foolish, blinded. 
but we're the progressives. We have it all sussed. Our gods work. This way of running a society works. And yet the irony is that most days in the news, what do we see? We see a society that is crumbling and breaking apart, and no one seems to be able to see it. Let's keep going down this road, no matter what the consequences appear to be. But what we have in, in Exodus is a foretaste of what's going to come. So uh, later on, we don't have time to do this today, but I would love you to be able to go to Revelation chapter 16, okay? Because in Revelation chapter 16, you're going to find the, the ultimate conclusion of what happens here in Exodus chapter 7 through 11. And it's not a pretty sight, okay? And so what we're going to see is that that God is working, God is moving, God is, is trying to help people see that He is the only way, the truth, and the life. So look at chapter 7 and verse 16. What does the Lord say? Chapter 7, verse 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And you can imagine Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't give it a second thought. Wise up, Moses and Aaron. Catch yourselves on. This God, Yahweh. Do you think I'm going to let my workforce go to worship some make-believe God? Away you go. There's the door. Don't come back. Don't bother me again. But what is God going to do? What's God going to do to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian people in all of their, their prosperity, and all of their uh, self-fulfilled uh, pomp, all of their pride? What is He going to do? Well, the Lord's going to do 7 verse 3. He's going to do signs and wonders in the land. The Almighty God is going to come to these people, and He's not going to leave them without a witness. There's going to be a witness in the land. For the Egyptians, they're going to have no excuse. And for the Israelites, for the Hebrew people, they're going to see their God again, and He's going to draw them into worship. The Lord is going to say, I am no sideline deity. I am not irrelevant. I am not powerless. I am the great I am, and I will show it. And last week, Stephen was helping us think about this. The Lord is going to do what? He's going to stretch out His almighty arm. He's going to stretch out His hand, and we're going to see it at work. So perhaps this morning you are at church, and you're, you're, you're here for maybe a, a reason that is not to worship the one true and living God. You're here because for some reason it maybe makes you feel a little bit better, and you haven't quite been able to figure out why. Or maybe you're here because you've been told from your earliest of days, this is what makes you a good citizen, a good upstanding person. But in a sense, that little scratch or the little voice or the question in your life, it's still there. It hasn't gone away. You've tried to suppress it. But you're holding back. You don't want to worship God. You haven't quite worked out what that would look like, what the consequences of that would be in your life. And maybe deeper than that, you're not quite sure if He really is true and real. Well, what I want us to see as we rattle through these signs and wonders is that you will have your, your metaphorical socks blown off with the power of our God. 
as you see him in his glory displaying his salvation for people, as he stretches out his mighty arm to rescue his, remember we thought about it earlier in Exodus, his only son, as he will come to the hard man Pharaoh and his hard heart, and he will help him to see who he really is. And so, for us, the, the key verse to unlocking this for us this morning, come with me back into chapter 6, one page back, and chapter 6, verse 7. So, chapter 6 and verse 7, the Lord says this. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is the key piece. This refrain runs throughout Exodus. It runs through these chapters that you will know, that you will be left without any, any shadow of a doubt, that you will know that I am the Lord, that there is no one like me. There is no one like Yahweh. There is no one like the great I am. No one else can compete with me. Chapter 7 and verse 5. What does he say again? The Lord with the same refrain. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them out and bring out the people of Israel from among them, you will know that I am the Lord. Here's what Eugene Peterson said on this. Uh, it's a quote that'll come up first. It might be slightly small. It's our only quote for today, but I think it's really, really helpful. He says this. He says, the ten plagues were employed to expose the emptiness of evil and to purge the Hebrew minds of all the envious admiration of evil. What does he mean there? These children of Israel had been watching Egypt for 400 years thinking, Egypt have it sussed. They are they're right. They're going in the right direction. And so the Lord's going to use these ten signs and wonders to do a work here to, to rid the Hebrew minds of all of this envy of evil and to systematically demolish every God delusion that evil uses to exercise power over men and women. Each of the ten plagues, I love this, was an ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds for just such a cleaning. The Lord is going to come to the people, and He's going to show them who He is so that they may know Him. And with each plague, He's going to do what? He's going to topple false gods. Well, Egypt, you think that your God's powerful? Where do you see this? One after one after one. And it's like He's, he's scrubbing the nation clean, and He's scrubbing His people clean from the false notions that they have, that they have hoovered up. So we've got one point for today, and it's just this, that there is no one like our God. There is no one like our God, and therefore He deserves all of our worship. So let's dive into this, okay? Pharaoh, who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh's the king. He's the king of 
uh, of Egypt, but he's also the incarnation within their uh, belief system, the incarnation of, of a deity, of two deities, of Ra and of Horus, okay? So, he is like a god, Pharaoh himself. And so we're told in history that individuals who approached the Pharaoh were commanded to prostrate themselves. They were to smell the earth and they were to crawl on the ground while invoking this perfect God and exalting his beauty. That's how people had to treat Pharaoh. They treated him like a God, Ram, Horus, in human flesh, this made up gods that they had. And so, what do we have in chapter 7 then? Well, we have this great encounter, and let's get this straight. This is not an encounter or a battle between uh, Moses on one side and Pharaoh on the other. No, there's something much greater going on. This is a, this is a war between our God, the triune God, and the false gods of Egypt, okay? There's big stuff that's going on. And whenever Moses and Aaron come in, what happens? Well, there's a moment of grace, Pharaoh has this opportunity to spare himself and the whole nation from going down a path that is going to be horrendous. And see the judgment that comes from an ungodly leader upon the whole of the land? There's lots to learn for us in our society. But here they come, and we have this encounter, verse 8 through to verse 13 of the staffs, the battle of the staffs. And so, uh, one staff, the staff of the Lord is thrown down. Remember, Egypt takes the staff as a symbol of authority, a symbol of power. And so, the Lord has given Moses and Aaron his staff, and he says, throw down my staff, and it becomes a, a snake. Strange. But here stands Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, boys, that's nothing. Our guys can do that too. You think this proves to me that your God lives and is true? magicians, you, you throw down your staffs. And so, the magicians, they all throw down their staffs, and we don't know quite how they do this, whether it's, a, it's a, an optical illusion of types, some sort of, you know, you see those sticks that, you can, uh, that can go rigid, and then you twist them and they start to move. I don't know. But they're doing something. They, 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 at least there's the appearance of serpents. Maybe they do conjure these up. And what happens? The Lord proves to them there and then, His staff, His serpent, eats theirs. M my power is more significant than yours. I am going to overwhelm you. You will not stand in my presence. And so Pharaoh should see instantly, oh, I am I'm out of my depth. He should bow in that moment, and he should worship the triune God. He should worship the great I am. But verse 13, still, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Isn't it true? We, we see this hardness. We see it maybe in ourselves or in our friends. Somebody gets saved, and we're chatting to them, and we say, well, that's great for you but there's a hardness. Or, or this notion about Jesus and, the, uh, and Christianity, that's great for all of you people, but for me, no. I'm smarter than that. I know better than that. I'm not going to believe in that. And so, what comes Pharaoh's way? 
Well, first of all, what do we see? The Nile is turned to blood. Now, why the Nile? Why is that the first? Well, in this section of text, what happens is the Pharaoh is going down to the Nile. It seems to be part of the Pharaoh's daily routine to go down and to worship at the banks of the Nile. And so they encounter, he encounters Moses and Aaron en route. You're going to go down, Pharaoh, and you're going to worship this, this body of water because you think that this is the God happy. The, 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 the Egyptians had deified the Nile. But like us going to Portadown and deifying the river ban, right? It'd be crazy. Nobody would do it. It's full of trolleys, okay? <laughs> but this is what the Egyptians do. They go down to the river. The river gives them life. It's their drinking water. Maybe it's like Loch Ness. <laughs> they go down to the, the banks of this body of water, and they say, you give us life, and so we will worship you. And what happens? The staff of the Lord is lifted, and it strikes the Nile in front of the Pharaoh. And what happens? The Nile, their, their source of life, their thriving economy, the, what they rely on for all of their crops, it instantly turns to blood. Look at verse 21. The fish die. The water stinks. They can't drink it. All of the water seems to have turned to blood. Verse 21, there's blood throughout all of the land of Egypt. And somehow, in the irony of this all, the magicians, they seem to find some water that's not yet turned to blood. And what do they do? They turn it to blood. Further judgment. You think that you can replicate this? Well, I'm going to judge you even more and they turned the water they had left into blood. Again, this is pointing forward. You'll see it later if you read it. Revelation chapter 16 and the judgment that will come in the last days where the water is turned to blood. But what happens? We know this. Pharaoh doesn't flinch. They have just turned the Nile into blood, and he doesn't flinch. So the second plague comes, chapter 8. And now we have frogs. For Egypt, the frog was a symbol of divine power and fertility. And so they had uh, their god called Hecate, and that was a female, with, a female body with a frog's head. And this was the symbol of fertility. And so what does Yahweh do? What does our God do? He says, okay, I'll take your symbol of fertility. You think frogs are a symbol of fertility, and I will I will burden your whole society with frogs. Can you imagine it? You go to the cupboard, there's a frog. You go, to, uh, you go to get a shower or a bath, there's a frog. They're jumping all over you. You try to put on your T-shirt, there's a frog in it. There are frogs everywhere, absolutely everywhere. You see it there? They're in their beds. They're in their kneading bowls. They, they can't move for frogs being absolutely everywhere. Why? Why is the Lord doing this? Verse 10, that you may know that there's no one like the Lord. Stop, Pharaoh. Relent. Worship me. And so in 8 verse 15, what do we see? The Pharaoh does seem to change. He asks for some sort of mercy. He cries out to Moses and to Aaron. And then look at what happens. 
But when the Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. This is our society all over, isn't it? We don't believe in your God, Christians. He's irrelevant. No power. But a great catastrophe happens. And what's the hashtag all over social media? Pray for such and such. Pray? Pray to who? Right? Whenever darkness comes, whenever hard times come, whenever there seems to be some moment of, of real tension or a crucible of suffering, what does our society say? It says, it cries out unto the Lord, Lord, have mercy on us, Lord, we will pray together, we will worship you. And then what happens, verse 15 happens, the second that things start to look a little bit brighter, whenever there's a respite, what happens? Well, then we just go back to our old ways. Society just falls back into its old ways. It prays in the pandemonium, doesn't it? But not in the day-to-day. -day. There's what Eric Alexander says is a, a shallow religious impression here pressed upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh. But it means nothing. And it happens. This happens in our lives, doesn't it? Something comes up, and we, we run to the Lord and we're, we're diligent in, in praying to Him and in reading His Word, and then whenever the, the nice times come, we, we back away. We freewheel as we think ourselves. Or perhaps at one stage, if you're not a Christian this morning, you, you turn towards the Lord in a crisis moment. You, you made a deal with Him. Lord, I'll worship you if you can get me out of this. And as time has gone on, You've backed away, and you've backed away. Well, it's not over for Pharaoh. Next comes the gnats, lice or mosquitoes, this can be translated. And so look at how many of them there are. 8 verse 16, Egypt is a dusty place. <laughs> it's full of dust. It's a desert. And what does the Lord say? the ground, the dust of the ground, there's that much dust, that'll be how many gnats or lice or mosquitoes there will be. They will be everywhere. You know, you know what it's like whenever you walk outside and there's some magis and you're waving your hands about, you're trying to get a cap on, you're trying to get back inside before they, they bite you. Can you imagine this? The, the whole of the land covered in gnats. And look at the response, verse 19. Even the magicians start to bend. They say, this is the finger of God. Do you notice they say it's only a finger? It's not the whole, whole arm of God. They don't want to give God the strength. It's just His finger. Surely this is the Lord. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not listen. And then it progresses on. Next is flies. And it seems to be like this type of flying beetle. I had one of these in my room uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's a weird creature, aren't they? They're, you get these like little flying beetles sometimes in Northern Ireland, and I was in bed, and you, you hear it, and you think, can I sleep with this in my room? And you do, the, you do the equation, is it worth trying to get up to find them? And then you think, right, I'm going to have to get up. You switch on the light, where is I? <laughs> and he zooms about the room, and you hunt them, and then bang, you get them, right? <laughs> and back to sleep. I had great satisfaction in getting him, but he was like a little hard beetle, right? And a strange little creature. Now, that was only one, and the torment that that brings you, look at this. The whole of the land are covered in these. 
Verse 21, they, they, they will be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground in which they stand. They can't even walk without standing on these things. They're absolutely everywhere. The flies are everywhere. But look at the change this time. Verse 22, the Lord's not just going to be sovereign over sending this. He's going to cordon off an area from flies and we know that that is impossible physically. We can't do that. There's no way to do it. But the Lord's going to do it. 8.22, on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord. So that you may know. Please, Egyptians, recognize this. Please, Pharaoh, relent. Please see this. Save your people. Spare your people. You're the federal head. And if you will relent, your people will enjoy blessing. But if you will not, they will enjoy punishment. And he doesn't relent. It goes on. Then we push on into the fifth sign and wonder, the livestock die. This is the industry of Egypt. It's their food and their milk and their clothing, and it's their transport. And what happens? They, they die. And this is God striking again at one of their false gods. There were bull cults that existed in Egypt. The Egyptian gods of Pata and Ra and Isis, the queen of the gods, they were all depicted as, as great cattle. Isis, she had cow horns on her head. And the Lord strikes at it. He strikes down their herds. But the Hebrew people, their herds shall live. Then it's on the boils. And there's a real interest and detail in this. As we come to the, the boils, do you notice what, what happens in verse 8 of chapter 9? And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh see this. Now, why is that significant? Well, what's Pharaoh been making God's people do? Make bricks. And what did they have to fire them up in? In a kiln. And so here the Lord says, you have punished my only son, Israel. Now watch this. As Israel takes the, the suit and throws it in the air in your sight, so boils will cover you. And there's no TCP. There's no germaline. They are inflicted with boils from head to foot. It's so bad that in chapter 9, verse 11, the magicians can't even stand because there's so many boils over their skin. And so Pharaoh knew and knew in certain terms how this happened. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't something he ate. It wasn't something that had got into the water. He watched Moses through the suit, through the, 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 the ash out of the kiln and covered the people in boils, but he still won't relent. Then in the heel, look at it in chapter 9, verse 13. Verse 14, again, that refrain, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 16, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And yet, Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people. The hardness of heart is, it's horrific, isn't it? Look at what this nation suffers because he won't relent. 
And so the Lord sends hail like they have never seen before. Verse 25, hail strikes down everything, every plant, and yet in Goshen, it's tranquil and peaceful. So that the Egyptians should look over, and they should see this land, and they should think, well, how do they have such peace? How do they have tranquility? Because they worship the triune God. It's not hard to figure it out. And yet they will literally die if they stand outside in this hail. And look at verse 9 and verse 34. What happens? He sinned again. The Pharaoh seems to relent, and then he sins again. God strikes at the heart again of Pharaoh's deities, of Egypt's deities. He, he strikes at the, the God, not who is the female representative of the sky. He strikes at Shu, who is the one who upholds the heavens. He strikes again at Tefnut, who is the goddess of moisture, just proving himself again and again, your gods are irrelevant. They have no power. Then we're nearly there. The locusts come. 10 verse 1. See, I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs. There's two things going on here. We haven't time to talk about this, but yes, the Lord is sovereign over Pharaoh and his hardness, and yet Pharaoh walks in hardness himself. Both are equal and true. And then verse 2, what's going on, Lord? Why is this happening? Verse 2, so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson that I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, this can be translated slightly differently. Instead of harshly, we could translate that, how I have made a toy of Egypt, says the Lord. Please never bring this back into question. Never bring it back up before me that I am some sideline deity, that I am irrelevant and unpowerful. I am the Lord. And you retell this to your children and to your children's children, what I have done. And still Pharaoh thinks he's in control. Still he doesn't listen. He doesn't listen to his counselors. And he tries to negotiate to Moses and Aaron. He tries to bargain with them at the end of this sign. And yet he will not relent. And then darkness comes. They worshiped the sun, didn't they? Worshiped Amun-Ra. The sun God, they thought that it gave them light. And what does God do? He switches off the light. Easy, simple. Ra, Amun Ra, switch off. Three days. And the darkness is thick. They can literally feel the darkness. Striking right at the heart of the Egyptians. And it's to help them see this is your spiritual condition. You are in darkness. Can't you see that I am the one who gives light and life? And again, verse 10, verse 24, Pharaoh seems to move a little bit. At least he's moved more than he had at 10, verse 8. But look at 10, verse 26. Moses says, not an inch, not a mile. We will take it. We will take our flocks because this is our God. This is the great I am. We will leave you, all of our people, with our flocks and with yours. And look at what he says, 1028, in that day you will see my face and you will die because now we're at the pinnacle, the last sign, the last wonder uh, where death will come. And the Lord had told us about this back in 422. He said to Pharaoh, I told you to let my son go or I will kill your firstborn. 
Israel are depicted here, are shown as the firstborn, God's son. And so you're holding my son, and so I will kill your son, and yet he will not relent. The Lord is saying, this is not a game. And we'll think more about this next week, how death then comes. So as we finish today, what, what's our question? Our question is this, will we worship him? Will we worship the great I am? This is not just stories that are made up for our children. This is real. The Lord stretching out His arm to rescue His people. And later on in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 11, Jethro hears about this, and how does Jethro respond? He says, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. Now I know. Is today the first day that we will say that? Today, now I know that the great I am is the true God, and I will worship Him. Because these signs and wonders were only a foretaste. Don't, don't get sidetracked with these. Take it all the way through to the Lord Jesus Christ. What signs and wonders would He perform for the people? What would we see in Jesus? This is only a forerunner for what will come. In John's gospel, John mirrors Exodus in some ways, and he shows that there's signs and wonders. These signs and wonders that Jesus would come and do, what would he do? He would not turn the water into blood, but he would turn the water into wine. He would come and he would enable paralyzed people, people struck down in illness, to walk. He would heal. He would give sight. He would not just split the water that we're going to see in a, in a couple of weeks' time. He would walk on the water. He would not just give a little bread that the people had in the desert that we'll see again, but he would feed thousands with next to nothing. And he would stand at the tomb, and he would summon the dead to live. Signs and wonders. And then the greatest sign of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he would go to the cross, God's Son sent to rescue us, His children, and He would die, and it seemed like it, seemed like it was all over. And then three days later, He would rise and appear to the twelve and appear to many others to show us that our God lives for the rest of history until He returns or calls us home to give us the greatest sign of all. And then he would ascend to the Father's right hand, and he would leave us the power of the Holy Spirit to show people, so that people would know that there's no one like our God. And if we reject him this day, if we harden our hearts again today, what's the ultimate conclusion? The ultimate conclusion is where Exodus chapter 11 begins, with death. That's our conclusion. You will die under the judgment of our God, and you will go to a place that Israel called hell, and you will be separated from Him forever. Our time is gone. We've made it through 7 to 11. And the point is simply this. There is no one like our God. Worship Him. And so it's my prayer that you may know that He is the Lord, 
and He alone is worthy of our praise. What a great God that we have. Let's pray to Him as we, as we think about this. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for what we've been able to see today, signs and wonders of who You are. Would You take this and would You bless it to our hearts? Would You crack open our hard hearts? Would You take off the veneer that we have and would You do a deep work in us this day? Lord, You have been so gracious to us to show us Yourself. We thank You, and we thank You that You have shown us Your Son, the Lord Jesus, the greatest sign and wonder of all, that You sent Your only Son to save us from our sin. Please, please melt our hearts today with the gospel truth. Would we know that You are our God, and would we worship You in spirit and in truth, for we ask it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.